It's an absolutely unique day in the parliamentary calendar. The Chamber of the House of Lords is at its most colourful. The Chamber itself is always packed. It's glorious. It's a great atmosphere. It makes one really proud to be a working peer or a peer of the realm. The Lords are waiting very formally, you know, the whole of the procession. There's absolute silence in the Chamber. And then what always jokingly referred to as the sort of noisy rabble come along from the Commons led by their Speaker, Prime Minister, Leader of the Opposition, coming in Noah's Ark like two by two. There are many traditions in the House of Commons at which people cock a snook, which are perhaps anachronistic. The tradition of the state opening of Parliament is assuredly not one of them. It's a kind of feeling of elation because you've got the Queen and you've got the trumpeters and everybody wearing their splendid costumes, you've got the guards. And it's fantastic, just as everybody sees it on the television. But it's much more than that. It is the beginning of the parliamentary session. And then the Queen reads the Queen's speech, which is, of course, the government's speech. So it's a time when, in the Queen's speech, the Queen outlines the government's programme for the session ahead. And it's a very, very important point in the political calendar. Baroness Heyman, the Lord Speaker, the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, and Baroness Royal, the Leader of the House of Lords, with their impressions of a day which combines pageantry and politics, the state opening of Parliament. This event marks the formal beginning of each new session of Parliament and occupies a place in our national culture and consciousness, regardless of political party. I'm Thomas Strathclyde and I am the leader of the opposition in the House of Lords. It is one of the very few times where you have the combination of the monarch, the Prime Minister and the Cabinet, the leader of the opposition and the other minor parties, the House of Commons and the House of Lords, and the senior judiciary, and the representatives of the ambassadors from around the world, the heads of the armed forces, the heads of the churches, the bishops, all sitting in one place. So this is a real coming together of all different parts that make up various institutions within the United Kingdom represented in Parliament to hear the Queen read the government's speech, although the government governs in the name of Her Majesty. My name's Tom McNally, the Right Honourable Lord McNally of Blackpool, and I lead the Liberal Democrats in the House of Lords. The state opening of Parliament is a snapshot of the British Constitution at work. The pomp and circumstances of the day also carry very serious messages. In many ways, the history, the last 300 years of Britain, is the passage of power from that throne down that long corridor to green benches occupied by people who are sent by the people. It's a day which brings together the constituent elements of our political system, where executive, legislature and judiciary meet to open the business of Parliament. It's also a day which reminds us of the struggles involved in the evolution of our democracy, and it arouses strong passions and pride. Speaker of the Commons, John Burko. From the vantage point of a member of the House of Commons, the state opening asserts the centrality of Parliament and of the House of Commons to our national life. I think members feel that it is an occasion for a display of assertiveness and self-confidence. There will not be a member of the House of Commons who is not aware of the background to the state opening. 
and therefore members of Parliament feel that on this occasion, they, the House of Commons, are in the driving seat. And the historical significance of the monarch reading the speech in the Lords is that the monarch doesn't come into the House of Commons. And the reason why that doesn't happen is that Charles I came here with his armies to the House of Commons demanding the right to arrest and charge with treason five members of the Commons. And, of course, Speaker Lenthal famously said to him, May it please your majesty, I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak in this place, but as the House is pleased to direct me, whose servant I am here... That was a roundabout, polite, but unmistakable message from Speaker Lenthal. I am not here, Your Majesty, to do your bidding. I am here to serve Parliament. And that was a matter of huge historical significance. The power struggle that took place over centuries between the monarch on the one hand and Parliament on the other. So there are many traditions in the House of Commons at which people cock a snook, which are perhaps anachronistic. The tradition of the state opening of Parliament is assuredly not one of them. One element of the proceedings, laden with political meaning, which captures the public imagination, takes place outside the doors of the House of Commons. My name is Freddie Vickers, and my title is Gentleman Usher to the Black Rod, which is a royal appointment dates back to the middle of the 14th century, and I'm the 59th holder of the post since then. On the day, my primary purpose is, once Her Majesty has taken her place on the throne, she signals to the Lord Great Chamberlain that she is ready to begin. I'm then set off from the House of Lords, down through Peers' Lobby, through the Central Lobby, to the doors of the House of Commons, where I hit the doors. The doors are slammed in my face. I knock on the door three times with the black rod, same place that it's been struck over the hundreds of years, and I'm admitted. I then march up into the chamber, and I say to the Speaker that Her Majesty is ready and wishes to see you in the House of Peers. And then we escort, with the Speaker, the House of Commons, back to the House of Lords chamber, and as soon as we're ready, the Queen reads the Queen's speech. The 58th time she's done it, very important in functional constitutional terms that Her Majesty is witnessed reading out the intentions of the government for the coming session. In the chamber, with the peers, with the members of the Commons, all in place, all playing their part in the mother of all parliaments. At one level, it's ceremony, it's people dressing up, it's people going through a, a traditional performance. But I take you back to our first point, which was the purpose of this place, its relevance to today and its relevance to the future. The number of people that I see come in here who still see this place as the mother of all parliaments. I don't believe that people who watch us at work would want it any other way. So on the day of state opening, what's the thing that's foremost in your mind? Hitting the door. Not missing the door. The reading of the Queen's speech sets the scene for the political business that will occupy the rest of the session. So what happens on the day when the ceremonial duties are concluded and the Queen has returned to the palace? Lord Speaker, Baroness Heyman. On the afternoon of state opening, there's a short and quite formulaic debate about the major elements of the Queen's speech. But then after that, we get down to work and there will be four or five days of debate on 
individual subject areas. So one might be defence and foreign affairs, one might be constitution and home, one might be employment and welfare benefits. And on those days, we have a series of debates that anyone can contribute to about the general policy in that area. It reminds us that governments govern only by getting legislation through. They have to put a programme of legislation to Parliament afresh every session, and Parliament has to, during that session, take on its responsibilities for scrutinising the legislation, agreeing it or throwing it out, and for holding government to account for its policies during that period of time. As leader of the House of Lords, Baroness Royal represents the government during the debates on the Queen's speech. Once the politics starts, then you get back into the kind of natural rhythm of things. It's a bit of a rumbustuous feeling, actually. First of all, one of my backbench colleagues moves the humble address. Usually it's a sort of a bright young thing. And then the motion is seconded by another one of my colleagues from the backbenchers. After these two speeches, the leader of the opposition moves that the debate be adjourned and then there's a bit of politics goes on. He will talk about, you know, what what the opposition's views are on the legislative programme. We go from the great ceremonial and a, a very collegiate atmosphere and then within a couple of hours, all that is put away, packed away into trunks until the next time. And we get down to the hurly-burly of, of politics. That afternoon, we begin the debate on the Queen's speech. It's an opportunity to make a more fundamental speech, some of it delving into the politics about what is being proposed by the government. Even though it's a general debate, these are raising very important issues about the state of the nation. By a lot of people, this is a debate that continues for five days. There are sometimes 30, 40 speakers a day. So a lot of people play a part covering the whole range of government interests from education, health, to the state of the armed forces, foreign policy, constitutional matters, and and, and so on. So it's quite a a civilised, broadly-based debate before we get into the hand-to-hand fighting over individual legislative proposals, different bills being brought forward by the government. In his political career, Lord McNally has witnessed the debates on the Queen's speech from the perspectives of the Lords, the Commons and as a minister. The Queen's speech debate will certainly set the tone and temperature for the session ahead uh, and you get some kind of flavour of where the political debate is going to be drawn. The contents of the Queen's speech are a closely guarded secret. When I was in government, the Prime Minister of the day has his ministers across in Downing Street, and in my day, Mr Callaghan used to rather flamboyantly say, lock the doors, and then he would read the Queen's speech. The party leaders also get copies the night before. So we only have less than 24 hours' notice in opposition of what the contents of the Queen's speech are. But on the other hand, one listens to what has been said. I mean, during the summer, there will have been lots of kind of elbowing and nudging because one of the things that tests a departmental minister, whether he or she has had the the muscle to get their legislation into the Queen's speech. The final decision and shape will be that of the Prime Minister, perhaps with the Chancellor keeping an eye on anything that looks a bit on the expensive side. 
the government get flagged up, both the people and the issues which are most controversial and those peers who might be preparing to give them the hardest time. And they'll also be able to gauge where they need to adjust or amend their proposals to try and get them through Parliament. What's particularly interesting about this state opening 2009 is that we all absolutely know for certain there will be a general election in the next uh, six or seven months. What they'll want to do is show how they're going to change the world, how they're going to improve people's lives. Of course, for the Conservative Party, we'll be saying, actually, if we had a Conservative Queen's speech, this is what we would be debating, and these would solve the problems. But that's the very nature of politics, and it's the nature of these kinds of debate. As you get nearer and nearer to the time where it's not politicians that make a decision, but it's people. Some of the things are quite bruising, but if you're in politics, you expect to be bruised, as it were, from time to time. I, of course, as a member of the government, think that all the bills that are coming forward are extremely important to the lives of people in this country. But clearly the Conservatives you know, might say the programme as the government set out simply doesn't address the needs of the people of this country. But that's politics, and that's the nature of the House of Lords. But the House of Lords is very different to the House of Commons. There's real hard politics but it's done in a much more sort of genteel way. The speeches won't be interrupted in any shape or form. It's all done in a much more, quote-unquote, civilised way. Baroness D'Souza is convener of the cross-bench group of peers, those who have no affiliation with one of the political parties. She also values the way that the debates following the Queen's speech are conducted in the House of Lords. These are wide-ranging debates which are not necessarily party political. They're not about a particular bill or legislation. They're certainly not about amendments. And it's an occasion when many new peers who have been recently introduced to the House make their maiden speeches because they can more or less talk about anything. The crossbenchers may hold a particular kind of niche expertise on a particular subject and therefore they will display that knowledge in the context of the Queen's speech. There are no votes. It is an occasion for the House to take stock, to look at the programme, to express a view about how that programme might go, to express wishes about what they would like to see further in the legislation, to condemn the government, to promote the government, to sit on the fence about the government, to talk about something obscure like nanotechnology or lice in sheep or building dams. You name it, you can talk about anything. So how is the debate conducted in the other house? Speaker of the Commons, John Burko. More conventional party politics expresses itself within a matter of minutes. Once the proposing of the gracious address has been undertaken and it has been duly seconded by the relevant backbencher, there is a joining of battle between Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition. The normal hostilities are resumed, the cut and thrust of debate is established and things continue much as usual. And that's perfectly healthy. That's the way it is and that's the way it will be this time and that's where I suspect it will continue to be under whichever government. But with all the history, tradition and symbolism surrounding a state opening, is there a risk that the meanings will be lost and that serious political business might be smothered by the ceremonial? Baroness Heyman and Lord McNally. It worries me enormously and it's a really difficult balance to strike. Because it's seen as so much pageantry, I don't think people see how it does symbolise our liberal democracy and the different parts of our constitutional settlement. And people love the ceremonial. It is a part of the national calendar as well as the parliamentary calendar. People do watch it on television, do feel pride 
What worries me from the point of view of the House of Lords is that it gives the impression that we are like that all the time rather than a working legislative chamber because the photograph that is used to illustrate any event in the House of Lords is a picture of the chamber at state opening with everyone in robes and ermine, usually of the judges because they've got wigs on. It does reinforce that absolutely outdated stereotype of the people who are members of the House of Lords. It is a great piece of pageantry. Uh, It has its downside for the House of Lords because it's the only day, the only day we wear the ermine, and yet every cartoonist, whenever he depicts the House of Lords at work, We're always in our ermine. And there has been suggestions that perhaps it would be better if instead of the state opening, there should be a joint meeting of both houses, none of us in fancy dress, seated in Westminster Hall with the Prime Minister of the day reading his programme with the Queen just acting as the kind of chairman of the day. It would make what was happening a little bit clearer, but I think it would take some of the magic out of the day.